Well, I'm so glad to see all of you out this evening for our Good Friday service. As many of you know, of course, that on Sunday we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, though, many churches have moved away from hosting a Good Friday service. And as a result, I believe that many of us rush in to Resurrection Sunday with a limited understanding and therefore a limited capability of truly embracing and adoring and loving God for all the resurrection means to us if we first and foremost don't understand the three days prior to the resurrection. It is the darkest time in human history. And I know that's a lofty statement for me to make. From the moment that Adam and Eve in the garden there in Eden decided to rebel against God and turn from Him and allow sin and therefore death to enter into God's perfect creation, a reign of darkness has taken place over all of the history of mankind. That darkness was pierced at the moment that Jesus Christ was birthed there in Bethlehem and he was announced by the incredible star that proclaimed his entrance into the world. But this reign of darkness that often allowed evil to run rampant without challenge, that darkness is something that we need to understand because it climaxed at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, we need to understand what took place in a three-hour window, the last three hours of the life of Jesus Christ. If we are truly going to embrace the resurrection properly as believers in Jesus Christ, if we're truly going to understand the new life that God gives us through His Son, we must understand what transpired and took place within those three hours of history. It is a lofty statement, undoubtedly, for me to make to say that we are now going to explore the darkest period in the history of mankind. I understand the evil atrocities that have taken place since the birth of man to the day that we live today and those things that will happen yet beyond this day. But we first need to understand what darkness represents. And darkness is clearly articulated to us throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Darkness is is given identity by simply understanding that it's only Reason for existence is the absence of light. That is the only reason for the existence of darkness, and that is the absence of life, a light. And as a result, this darkness allows evil to run rampant because of the absence in which that light presents. And as we explore these three hours together, let us understand first and foremost that when we look at the Bible in its entirety, 
the length and breadth that it spreads from the beginning of man to the end of time and all history. We understand that throughout the Bible, it is clear to us that there is one central figure that is exalted amongst all others, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, from a biblical perspective, we can understand that. Reading and understanding and looking at the life of Jesus Christ from Genesis all the way up to the Gospels, all the way then to the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus Christ is is everything. But to this world who is not looking at Christ through the lens of the Scriptures would be confounded to say that this individual should have such prominence in our history. Let us think for a moment about the person of Jesus Christ. He lived 2,000 years ago. His life, his ministry... His death are undeniable. His resurrection is still one of the most uh, provable facts in all of history. This individual changed the world forever. He did not have access to any of the technological advances that we have today. In fact, he never operated from a place of royalty or wealth, but of complete and utter poverty, having no place in which he could lay his head. His beginning started not in the lap of luxury in one of the beautiful hospitals in which we have in our society today, but his life began as he was born in a barn. He never traveled more than 100 miles from his birthplace in his entire life. He never attended higher education He didn't rub shoulders or he never dropped names of those in whom he was associated with. In fact, he associated with just the opposite. Those who were cast off and scourged by society. He never married. He never held a political office. He died homeless and poor at the age of 33. And yet one summed up his life as such. Nonetheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms so large, he states, over human history that we actually measure time by him. Our calendar is divided, of course, from his birth to his death in the sense of B.C., and AD. And yet this individual was so small on the historical radar. And yet this weekend again billions of people will remember the day he died and the day he rose again. The significance of Jesus Christ and the story in which he brings about makes him undoubtedly the most loved and the most hated individual of all of history. He wasn't hated for those things in which he did, but the things in which he said. In a society in which he challenged, as he stated, as he was a light in the darkness. 
I don't think there's any individual in history that we are more familiar with their birth, their death, oh, and their resurrection than Jesus Christ. We all know that, of course, Mary one day discovered that she was with child. Now, the Lord had told her that this was going to happen, and she didn't feel worthy to accept this incredible responsibility that she was going to conceive and give birth to the one who would be called the Messiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. She was betrothed to Joseph, which would have put her in a very difficult spot before the society in which she lived. We know that the Holy Spirit came upon her in gentleness and she conceived as he simply just touched her womb and therefore conceived the child, Jesus. They didn't even have to pick out his name. It was already picked out for them. They knew when he was going to be uh, born. No one gave them a date and said plus or minus two weeks. In fact, uh, even right before the birth, they traveled from where they were to a small desolate place called Bethlehem, in which the Bible stated very clearly that the Messiah was going to be born. And this birth was heralded by a pinprick in the darkness of humanity, in the darkness of this world, and illuminated by a star that guided many to his birth. Not many rich and wealthy, but the lowly shepherds of the field were invited by the angels. Now, we know these facts and details because each and every year we celebrate Christmas. And we remember these things and we are reminded of these things. Today, when we talk about the cross and when we talk about his crucifixion, and even when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm afraid that we have so washed it in the sense of pragmatism that we make it somehow a uh, formula to somehow personally better our lives here on this earth and lose all of the theological repercussions of what truly took place. That if you were to understand when you came to church, you would have to raise your hands, close your eyes, and just give God the adoration that he so deserved through all that he did through this incredible event. For the resurrection cannot be separated from the crucifixion, and the crucifixion cannot be separated from the resurrection. We need to understand both. And that's why we host a Good Friday service each and every day, uh, each and every day, each and every year to allow us to remember why we celebrate the resurrection in the manner that we do. And that's what I want to bring to your attention today. I want to help you explore that three hours of darkness that Christ experienced I want you to understand all that took place within that veil of darkness to help you understand the miraculous and the joy and the incredible praise and adoration and love of God to know that on the third day he rose again. We as Christians need to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us to live for him and to love him as he so desires us to do. That's my challenge for you this evening. Are you on board? Are you willing to take it?
Because once we start to explore these things as a church family, we can't go back. These things should change your life. It should change your thinking. It should cause you to look at Jesus in a completely new way. In a way that brings such awe and respect and reverence to him. To help us to understand that we have been spared something so significant that Jesus Christ bore on our behalf. Now I know you're here tonight and you're, maybe someone dragged you here and maybe you wanted to do something else or I don't know. But this is your appointment with God. God wants you to know this. Because when Jesus says he loves you or God says that he loves you, he demonstrated by giving his only son. And how often do we run through that word? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How, how often do we just run through that word? We really don't know what it means. We really don't understand it. Yes, we know that he died a brutal, a brutal death. We know that he subjected himself to the hands of his own creation to be whipped and to be mocked. But he did that for us. And yet we don't fully understand as believers in Jesus Christ anymore what that means. We use words like justification and atonement and we throw them around in theological circles, but we really don't have any connection to them. And that's what I want to bring to your attention this evening. And it's easy to understand if you will allow yourself to understand it. If you will be honest and open with yourself before God this evening, you will be changed forever. I'm convinced of it. So as we begin, let us turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And as we begin to explore this moment of darkness, which I will adamantly argue was the darkest period in all of history. Understanding that darkness only exists due to the absence of light. And therefore, at this particular moment in history, darkness reigned thoroughly and completely. So as we begin in Luke chapter 23, let's pick it up with verse 26. And I'm going to ramp up to our text because again, we read these things to remind ourselves of that moment in time. We read these things to remind ourselves what God has done for us on our behalf. And of course, as you remember the account, he rode into Jerusalem seven days earlier, hailed and received as one who would deliver them from their oppression, specifically the oppression of Rome. And as he rode in there on the back of a donkey, they hailed him and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. He was worshipped and adored. And the attention arose amongst even the oppressors, the Romans themselves, of his entry. In his last week before the religious leaders, he often provoked them, turning over the tables, rebuking them openly, claiming that the temple would be rebuilt in three days, etc. 
And finally, they had come to a point where they had enough. And they had one of his own followers, Judas, betray him. You know this. And once Judas betrayed him to the religious leaders, they arrested him that night. Judas picked him out of the crowd by kissing him on the cheek. He was then arrested. He was then tried in this mock trial. And he was tried before the religious leaders. He was tried before Herod. He was tried before Pilate. Found innocent in every single case. And yet the religious leaders saw him so dangerous that they pushed for his execution. They needed to have him killed. For the Jewish people couldn't exercise capital punishment any longer under the Roman occupation. Only Rome could execute an individual. And so he was brought before Rome, and even Pilate uh, was warned by his probably his, one of his chief advisors, his wife, this is not one you want to mess around with, Pilate. Let's stay back from this one. Let's get out of this conversation. Let's have someone else deal with it. This guy, there's something about this guy. And as a result, he brought him before the people and had the Jewish people decide, and those who cried, Hosanna, are now crying for one who they now believe has a better opportunity of delivering them from Rome, one name, Barabbas. And as a result, Barabbas was released and Jesus was then taken. He was whipped. He was taken and beaten. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. A cat of, 39, uh, a cat of nine tails was taken to his back 39 times. You know all of this. I'm just ramping it up for what we are going to look at next. And now the time had come. Brought before Pilate once again. Pilate said, don't you understand, Jesus, that I have the power to release you or the power to have you crucified? Jesus said, you'd have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. And as a result, the cries of the people, the cries of the religious leaders, persuaded and pushed Pilate to have Jesus crucified. At that moment, a beam was laid on his shoulders He made his way from there, which was called the Praetorium. There in Jerusalem, it was the place in which Pilate would judge and cast sentence, pronounce sentence, I should say. And from that point, he then walked out to the outer skirts of Jerusalem to a place that was called the place of the skull, Golgotha. And as a result, at that moment, he was crucified between two thieves who were also crucified that day. And of course, let's pick it up at verse 26. He is on the Via Della Rosa, that is the road on the way to Calvary. And as they led him away, they seized one named Simon the Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So weak from everything had taken place, he couldn't carry his own cross. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. 
And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. For these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha, Calvary, they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, he is the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There were also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, that is noon in the Jewish clock calendar. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, this darkness. Verse 45 rendered correctly from the Greek scriptures. While the sun's light failed... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowd that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all the acquaintances of the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Three hours. Tonight we are going to look at those three hours. Because there are three things that occurred in those three hours that you and I desperately need to know and to understand. When we talk about Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, we often reduce it to simply that. He died so I may live. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the process of his death, In the course of these three hours, three things transpired and took place that you and I were destined for. And the only thing that is now keeping us from those is his substitutionary death on the cross. 
And again, we need to wrestle with this. We need to look at this. We need to honestly and objectively consider what he has done for us on our behalf. The scriptures tell us very clearly that he came to the cross at nine in the morning and for three hours he hung there. At the third hour of his crucifixion, the actual hanging there on the cross, the scripture tells us very clearly that darkness shadowed the entire world. It was much greater than an eclipse. In fact, the ESV renders the Greek properly when it says that in that moment, the sun failed. The sun not only illuminating that portion of the earth at that particular time, but all of the earth at the time in which it would have been uh, laid at, at that course in that position of the day. The sun failed. The ultimate moment of darkness, where the reign of darkness climaxed over the humanity of the world, where evil thought that at its pinnacle, it had accomplished the greatest defeat of the plan of God. But you and I know that in the wake of all of this, God was fulfilling his plan perfectly. And again, let us remember what one had said about the definition of darkness. Darkness has no existence by itself, being definable simply as the absence of light in a physical and spiritual reality as well as an apt symbol for some of the most profoundest human experiences. That's the way darkness is displayed and defined throughout the Bible. Now in that moment... As the darkness shrouded the world, the first thing that we must understand is that the Old Testament tells us clearly, along with the confirmation of the New Testament, that encroaching uh, encroaching darkness throughout the Bible always points to the divine judgment of God. At this moment that the darkness started to creep in over the whole world, This moment that individuals saw and left and were so amazed by what they saw. One praised God. The others left beating their breasts with mourning and sorrow. Others kept at a distance and stood and watched and witnessed in fear and in confusion. This darkness was so profound that it is recorded for us in such a manner. As Amos writes about darkness, he states in Amos 8-9, And on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Amos talking about this very moment. Joel picks up on that same idea and talks about the darkness encroaching upon the world at the end of the world in Joel 2.10. The earth quakes before them, he writes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. As one wrote, as he looked at the color black throughout all of the Bible. Let us understand that every word of the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is God-breathed. And so when imagery is used, when colors are used, they mean something. 
God is trying to communicate to us something through these things. And how do we define them? By the manner in which they are defined in the Bible itself. Helping us to see and to understand how God is using these things and why God is using these things. And let us understand that our God is the God of all creation, is He not? He's the most artistic of us all. And often wants us not only to embrace the narrative, but embrace the emotions of the narrative. And sometimes those emotions are conveyed through the colors in which are used. So one looking at the color black wrote this. He says, whenever the color black is used in the Bible, it is often associated with the threatening presence of God in dark times of divine judgment upon sin and evil. Throughout the Old Testament, images of the coming of God and judgment are painted with black hues. So as this darkness starts to shroud and to cover the entire world and the judgment of God is taking place in some manner, let us understand that all who stood there and witnessed this did not understand this. They did not see it. Some were as audacious to begin to ridicule and to mock what was happening there on the cross. But now we see it for what it truly states and is, and that is judgment was being poured out by God the Father at that moment, conveyed to us in the darkness that enshrouded the moment. But judgment of what? That's the question that we are then left with. The judgment of what? Let us understand that at that very moment, the sins of the world were placed on the shoulders of Christ. At that very moment, every evil deed done in the darkness that reigned from the fall of Adam, past, present, and future, God placed on his son that he may pay for them, that he may atone for them. And the possibility through him of forgiveness is now capable of being offered. God was judging all the sins of the world on the shoulders of Jesus Christ at the moment that darkness began to shroud the earth. For the epistles tell us very clearly that God's wrath was poured out upon his only son for those sins. The anger of God in his, in his holiness and in his righteousness was poured out on his only son, his one and only, his unique begotten son. And let us understand that this judgment was not for the sins that he committed, for he was without sin in every way, shape, and form. It was our sin that was placed on his shoulders. Everything that we have done, past, present, and future, all placed there on Jesus Christ. And God poured out his wrath upon that. That's a scary thing. I don't know about you, but the wrath of God is not something that I want to provoke or play around with. It's serious. When I was a little kid, there were 
one sentence that my parents would often say to me, or my mom would often say to me, that scared the living daylights out of me. Whatever I was doing to provoke her, and I provoked my mom to no end. She would only have to say one thing to me. Wait until your father gets home. That stopped me dead in my tracks. Because where I could totally weather a, a little spanking from mom, dad was a whole different ball game. Much heavier handed than mom was. And I had a fear and a reverence for my dad. Often, that statement would lead me to then sit at the window, wait for my dad to pull up, run out to the car and confess my sins, hoping for mercy and grace. But what God the Father did for us on our behalf was that Jesus took your sin, everything you've ever done, everything that would provoke the wrath of God upon you, Jesus took upon himself. And he paid for it at that moment. And the wrath of God was experienced by him rather than us. As one wrote, he summed it up in this way. Jesus had suffered the judgment of men, and now he would endure the judgment of God. As Jesus entered the heart of his suffering, God kept the sun from shining. Christ entered all the dimensions of hell while there on the cross. In those hours of darkness, he bore our guilt. He endured God's wrath and suffered the taunting of evil. He endured all of this alone without any comfort of his father's presence. That is why he finally cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then the darkness passed. The storm was over. The judgment poured out on Christ was exhausted, fully spent. And at the end of the three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out, It is finished. There are so many that once they discover that I'm a pastor, they'll always ask me one of three questions. And one of those questions is this. Why, if God exists, is there so much suffering in the world? Why, if God exists, does he allow this suffering to continue to innocent, good people? Why does God allow these things day in and day out? Why doesn't he just then come and judge and end it all before any more suffering can take place? And I tell them, he did. He came in the form of a man. And all of the sins of the world were judged at that moment. And when he returns, he will take possession of that in which he purchased through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, why does he wait? Why does he not just come? And why doesn't he not just deal with everything now? This is getting ridiculous. Well, there's one reason. And that reason is that he desires all to come to repentance. That reason is, is that he hopes that individuals will come to him and realize that they can have new life through Jesus Christ and spend eternity with him rather than apart from him for the rest of their eternal existence. He gave this opportunity for individuals to be spared from the wrath of God that is to come. 
As Chuck Swindoll said, he said, Christ gave his life on the cross in order to satisfy God's holy wrath on sin. The most significant moment in redemptive history was when Jesus bore the sins which the old covenant sacrifices could simply only cover. As he bore the sins of everyone past, present, and future, he became sin on our behalf. And God dealt with it there. Not only paying and atoning for sin, but allowing us an opportunity to escape the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. That's the first and foremost of the three events of this period of darkness. Secondly, the darkness indicated a separation from God the Father and the Son Jesus Christ that had never taken place before. When Jesus was hanging on the cross at that moment, he shouted out the words of Psalm 22 verse 1. And in the Greek, it is stated as such, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the holiness of the Father would not allow him to look upon or to commune with sin in any way, shape, or form. So when the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus Christ, the Father turned his head from his Son. The the communion that the Father and the Son enjoyed his whole entire life up until that point was severed. And he cried out, he says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went this way alone. Number two, we need to understand that our sin separates us from God. Our sin is the greatest cause of an individual's personal loneliness in the world. I'm going to talk about more of that in just a minute. But Jesus Christ uh, experienced this separation for the moment. It's a separation from God that was shrouded in this darkness in these three hours. And the only way we know about this separation is because of the theology that the Bible tells us that God could not appear and look and witness and so forth, His Son in this manner, turned. And that communion was broken as the sacrifice was being made on the behalf of you and I, and therefore Jesus was truly alone. One summed it this way. In the ultimate moment of his agony, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was as if the Father had turned his back on the Son as Jesus bore the sins of humankind. And then Jesus declared in three words, It is finished. And when Jesus became an innocent sufferer himself, crucified for our sins, God just seemed to utterly be absent, perhaps more so than at any other event that we can imagine. Jesus' followers watched helplessly as he cried out, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Some held out hope for a miraculous deliverance, but nothing happened. At least nothing happened that they could see. At that time, it seemed as though God had been shut out from the very situation. But we know in retrospect, 
That, that at that moment, he had deliberately excluded himself. Taking our sins upon himself, Jesus was more directly identified with humanity and more engaged with human misery than at any time in history. He was alone in going through it. In that moment of darkness... Jesus experienced what it is like to be separated from God, to be in darkness, and to reap the loneliness that that produces within us. And lastly, in this darkness, as he cried out those last three words, it is finished, it then states in verse 46 of chapter 23, then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died on our behalf. He experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. He experienced the separation from God the Father on our behalf. And he experienced death on our behalf. This is what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let us understand. This is so important, guys. Listen with me. Each and every person who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, who does not believe in God, who does not have that relationship with God the Father through Christ that he so desires to have with them. As Paul would say, if they are not in Christ, that what, then what lies ahead for them, what may lie ahead for you, is the judgment of God upon you. The separation of, from God upon you. The death that resulted from the sin that is still dwelling in you is upon you. That's the state that an individual is in before God who does not have Christ. You see, if we will not follow Jesus Christ, if we will not give our lives to Jesus Christ, then he therefore cannot be a substitute on our behalf. And therefore, I have to account for my sin directly before God. And to account for those sins, I must experience the wrath of God. I must experience the separation from God. And I must experience death. Now, many individuals are misled to think that once they die, it is simply like falling asleep. They lose all reality... They, all, they lose all sense of conscience. They lose all um, ability to reason and to think and to understand. They think that it's just going to end. And for many, they feel that death is a better option for them today than to turn and to follow Jesus Christ. Today we live in a society where people kill themselves every single day because they have no hope. They're empty. They're alone. 
They feel like they don't matter in this whole grand society in which we live. For whatever reason brings them to the brink of suicide. They perform that act thinking that this is going to be the moment that I can separate myself from my sufferings and I can make everything all right again. Stop! Wait! Because the Bible says something different. The Bible says this, that everyone is going to exist for eternity. The key is where you're going to exist. The Bible says clearly that you can enjoy God and His presence in heaven for all eternity and all the blessings that come from that. And if you think that heaven is reduced to a bunch of little fat angels sitting around riding on puffy clouds, playing harps, Man, and that, oh, well, hell is the place to go. That's where the real party is, and that's where all the cool people are. Really? I'm telling you, if I go to heaven and I find out I'm going to be a fat little angel, I'm going to be greatly disappointed. Okay? I got that going for me now. I want something better, okay? But Jesus Christ told me that hell is not a place that I want to go. And Jesus Christ talked more about hell than any other individual throughout the entire Bible. Why? Because he wanted no one to go there. He talked about it because he says, I'm going to provide a way out. You don't feel like anyone loves you? Understand, I love you so much that I died on your behalf and now we know what that death meant. You feel alone in a society that is filled with millions of people God says what you're really lacking is not a relationship with another individual here on this earth. What you're missing is the relationship that I want to have with you through my son, Jesus Christ. You feel like you don't have any direction in life. You don't feel like you have any wisdom. You don't know what the purpose of everything is anymore. You don't know why you're here. God says, I have the answers to all of those things. But understand this, there's something keeping you from me. There's something that is keeping you from me, and that is your sin. Now, God is saying to you tonight, here it is. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to experience the wrath that I poured out upon him for the sins of the world. I turn my head from my son in whom I love that he may experience what it means to be separated from me. And even when he called out, I did not run to his aid or his attention. I sent my son and he died. Not for his sin. He was perfect in every way. But for the death that your sin would result in. He died for you. God is saying to all of us tonight through this day, in what appears to be the darkest moment in history, I love you so much that this is what I've done on your behalf. And he says, come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. The world doesn't have the answers that you're looking for. And whatever peace that they may demonstrate or or prosperity that they may hold, it's fleeting. It's here one moment and gone the next. 
The world pursues after happiness, but I will give you joy, the Lord says. And though we're given the promise of happiness, we're never given the promise of finding it, are we? And even if we find it for a moment in this earth, it's so hard to maintain, isn't it? Something disrupts it, and then all of a sudden we're back to square one again. God says, I'll give you joy. You want peace? You're never going to find peace in this world. You can't have peace until you first have peace with me. And then you can truly enjoy peace here on this earth. Oh, that by the way, surpasses all understanding. That's what God has done for us in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to close this evening by bringing you back to the reality of darkness. As darkness is simply defined by the absence of light, John tells us in 1 John that God is light. And darkness only exists where God does not dwell. And the reason that so many to this day struggle with this inner loneliness I was blown away to discover when the reports came out from 2017. Today, the number one reason that individuals under 25 go to seek counseling is because they are experiencing a loneliness that they cannot deal with. It's a separation from God. Hey man, you may have 400 people as friends on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat but they will never satisfy that inward longing. In fact, I will trade all 400 of those individuals for one. That is Jesus Christ. Because once he takes residence in your heart, in your life, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. Now, I want to share this with you this evening in closing. These are the exact words that were spoken to me when I was 16 years old. These were the words that were spoken to me that caused me to embrace Jesus Christ. When I fully understood what he did on the cross on my behalf, me, I'm nobody. I was 16 years old. I was angry at the world. I, I, I didn't have any direction whatsoever. I didn't know which way was up. My home life was spiraling out of control. And then I found out that the God of all the universe loved me. I had nothing that was lovable. I mean, I was, I was good looking, but I had nothing that was lovable. And when someone told me all of this, it was like my eyes just opened. And then when I read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, there's that word again. It means so much more to us now than it did before, doesn't it? His only begotten son, then whomsoever shall believe in him, it's open to everyone, shall not die, but have everlasting life. This is your appointment with God. This is the day. You really want to embrace the resurrection on Sunday, you've got to go through today. You've got to deal with this first. There was no point of Jesus resurrecting if he first didn't die, is there? This is the reality of the death on the cross. Those three hours that darkness reigned supremely. 
when the world said, God, we do not want you. God, we hate you. God, get out of here. God, we have no desire for you. God, you're hindering everything that I want to do. We hung him from a cross to get rid of him. And we thought that we were successful in our attempt, didn't we? But in it all, the futile free will of man, thinking that they're doing one thing, getting rid of God, God says, guess what? Each and every time you cried out and said, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. He could have, right? Nothing for God to get off the the cross, right? But he didn't. You know why? Because he was more concerned about you. He didn't want to save himself. He wanted to save you. He wanted to save each and every one of you. And it was that love that held him to the cross and kept him there until he dismissed his spirit. He didn't die at the hands of man. He died when he was ready to die. He gave up his spirit and said, it's done. It's paid for. Now, each and every individual that will come and embrace the love that I have for him, I am going to embrace them like no one's ever embraced them before. And they are going to know love like they've never known before. And they're going to have purpose and relationship like they've never had before. And it's going to be awesome. That's what God's saying. Theologically. I think that's in the Greek somewhere. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be hard. Hey, people are going to hate you. They hated me. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. That's going to be tough, but I'm going to give you the spirit to do it. But when it's all said and done, you're going to be with me in eternity. You're going to be with me in eternity. Now, I want to give you a glimpse going forward. We can't leave it on such a dark note, can we? Turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 22. On Sunday, I'm going to expel one of the greatest myths concerning light and darkness. And that myth is expelled by these verses. And I'm going to give those to you this evening so you can be contemplating them for Sunday's service. Because again, darkness only exists in the absence of light. When it's all said and done, this is what eternity will look like for you and I. Verse 20, on chapter 22, verse 1 of Revelation, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystals flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were of the healing for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any uh, accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night, notice this, verse 5, night will be what? Shout it out. No No more. They will need no lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and forever and forever and forever it goes. This is what that day meant. For the greatest moment of darkness 
led to the greatest revelation of light. And we'll explore that this Sunday in the light revealed. Father,